Climate change is this unprecedented historical event, moment, process that represents sort of an extension of an already existing form of crisis. And what is nature to capitalism? How does capitalism sort of see, perceive, treat nature? What is value? What kinds of things are valued under capitalism? What are not? The artificial separation of the political and the economic just isn't going to work when we're confronting crises of this sort. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Hello. Welcome everybody to Grounded Conversations, Building Power Within and Beyond the University, Ideas and Actions for Climate Researchers with the wonderful Associate Professor Alyssa Battistoni. And I'm Anna Sturman. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at SEI. I'm going to start today, as we always start, with an acknowledgement of country. I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia and to recognise their continuing connection to land, water and culture. I personally am on Gadigal land and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I also acknowledge the traditional owners of the country that you're on, everyone tuning in today, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. Sovereignty was never ceded and we should bear that in mind uh, as we have this discussion today about materialist politics and what that might mean for us in a time of climate change. So thank you very much everyone for joining us. Uh, today for this conversation with leading political theorist Alyssa Battistoni. The Grounded Conversation series, just very briefly, is part of SEI's uh, commitment to um, helping early career researchers connect and network with each other without creating the massive amounts of carbon associated with flying us all across the world. So it's really lovely to be able to, to speak today with Alyssa, who is in the US, uh, and us here in Sydney time. So it's going to be um, a nice casual conversation. Uh, I will very briefly introduce Alyssa with a hopefully not overwhelming description of all of her achievements and then outline how this conversation will go today. And then I will hand over to Alyssa to, to introduce herself in her own words. So, uh, Alyssa is a political theorist and an assistant, I said associate before, sorry, assistant professor of political science at Bernard College. She works and teaches on climate and environmental politics, capitalism, Marxism, feminism, and other topics in contemporary social and political thought. Alyssa's academic work has been published in Political Theory, Perspectives on Politics, and Contemporary Political Theory. She also writes essays and book reviews about the politics of climate, labor, and capitalism for The Nation, Dissent, The New Left Review, N Plus One, The New Statesman, Boston Review, Jacobin, and elsewhere. And I'd really encourage everyone, if you're not already familiar with Alyssa's work, she's a beautiful writer and thinker, and you should definitely go and look at her stuff. Uh, sorry, really quickly, I should also say, um, please, if you haven't connected with SEI events before, stay in touch with us. This uh, webinar will be available as a podcast, is the word I'm looking for, after the event. So feel free to listen to it again or send it on to people. Um, and you can follow us on social media and stay up to date with what we're up to. So that's been a lot of me talking. Very quickly, 
we're going to introduce ourselves and some key uh, concepts that bring our work together and that we think are useful uh, and then move on to talk about the different contexts for the type of theory and politics that we each work with and finally touch on some of um, a bit of a discussion about being early career researchers and what that means in the world right now and how what we're talking about might contribute to a certain way of being an ECR and, and being in the world. Okay, now is the time. Alyssa, please feel free to introduce yourself in your own words. Thank you so much, Anna. Um, and thank you for the invitation to be here. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. And thanks, everyone who's on Zoom. Um, I just wanted to note that um, I'm speaking to everyone today from uh, Manahata and Lenape Hoking, the traditional, ancestral, and unceded ground of the Lene Lenape people, um, and to recognize their uh, continuing role in stewardship of these lands and waters um, from which we're currently speaking, or at least I'm currently speaking, uh, across across the planet. Um, and I really do appreciate also that there's a you know this format of of sort of putting bringing people into conversation without sort of the you know the the carbon intensive travel that's usually associated with these conversations. It's always nice to be in person, but it's also really great to be thinking about how we can facilitate these kinds of connections across long distance. So, um, you know, it's one thing I just want to sort of appreciate about the Grounded Conversation series. Um, so, you know, I don't have a lot to add to that very generous and, and thoughtful introduction, Anna. Thank you so much. Um, uh, you know, um, as Anna mentions, I, I work on political theory. I'm a political theorist. I'm working on um, uh, environmental and climate politics from Marxist and feminist perspectives. Um, I'm working on um, trying to finish a book on uh, the concept of the free gift of nature, um, both within sort of uh, 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 Marxist thought, but also as it sort of uh, reappears in other forms um, uh, in, in 20th century political and economic thought. Um, and uh, there are a lot of other things. There are a lot of other things to to say, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, speaking about myself. I'd rather just get into the conversation. So, um, yeah, let's go for it. Yeah, let's let's do this um, very quickly, so that um, people can sort of place me in relation to Alyssa. So I am trained as a political economist in the discipline of political economy at the University of Sydney, and have a long-standing interest in exactly the same sorts of things that Alyssa works so thoughtfully on uh, and came across her work when I was uh, doing work with a, a dear friend and great colleague Natasha Heenan on the Green New Deal and the Green New Deal in Australia and Aotearoa New Zealand for me and we came across Alyssa's work um, and forgive me it's a planet to win is the name of the book that you wrote with your colleagues about that yeah so that's sort of the the the, the germinating seed of how it came to um being engaged with Alyssa's work and today uh, I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at SEI working with Danielle Salamaya, David Schlossberg, Blanche Verley and Freya McDonald on basically multi-species justice and climate adaptation is how I'd uh, frame it at a high level. So lots of these issues around, you know, environmental politics, theories of justice, um, and how we how we understand our relationship to the rest of nature as we're trying to build these progressive strategies. I think it would be really great to start by framing maybe some of the the core precepts or principles that guide the, the kind of work, the materialist approach to thinking about nature. So not to throw you in the deep end immediately. Uh, but would you maybe want to kick us off with how nature 
is positioned within your work and your political theory? Wow, this is just a little question. Um, I should have a great answer for this because I'm teaching a class on the politics of nature right now. But if anything, I think it makes it harder to answer the question. Um, and and even you know, sort of the using the term nature is always such a such a challenge, but one that I, I keep coming back to um, for kind of you know um, as a placeholder for uh, many you know for all the complications of this word and all, all the critiques may have of it. Um, so how do I think about nature? Um, at its place and and thinking i guess one way to put it is i've been i've been trying to think about how to put um conversations that we see in a lot of critical environmental studies around precisely this question like what is nature how do we distinguish nature from society can we is this like an inherently modern western concept the sort of distinction of nature society where do humans and society and all of that fit into sort of this concept of nature um and and many other sorts of questions that arise in terms of thinking about um uh, what it means to to define a term nature um and to try to bring some of those conversations together with um what I think are a lot of the core questions of, of um, you know, the kinds of Marxist and um, historical materialist questions that, um, you know, I know you and, Aunt, you and I, Anna, have both often come to these from, which just thinking about, um, well, uh, how, you know, questions like what is value, what kinds of things you know, are valued under capitalism, what are not, um, what kinds of, uh, like, how do these things that we, that we um, understand to be, um, you know, that, that I think, I think one of the things I value about historical materialism is the historical, right, that it's trying to bring a, a historical perspective and say, yes, we don't think, um, um, you know, labor or nature um, or, or wealth are the same across time. We have to think about that in historically specific ways. Um, and so I think bringing that set of kinds of questions that I think are already very present in the, in the conversation around, um, you know, again, kind of critical environmental thought, what is nature, um, together with these questions about um, and what is nature to capitalism, how does capitalism sort of see, perceive, treat nature, and to, to make some arguments that are um, hopefully kind of a little more specific about what I think, um, you know, uh, uh, why and how I think capitalism sort of ends up um, repeatedly sort of treating nature in, in the ways that it does and, um, and why we see um, some of the, uh, you know, I mean, Part of my argument is this is where the sort of idea of the free gift of nature comes in or that as like a core concept for understanding that relationship. Um, but again, just trying to, to, to sort of um, put conversations that I think right now or have historically been happening in, in slightly different sorts of registers and in kind of like in parallel in some way more together because I think we can um, get a lot of both. And uh, that's, that's, I'll, I'll stop there as a start, but I'm happy to you know go into more detail anywhere. Oh, that was an incredible start. Thank you. That was much more coherent than I would have been able to do with such a, that's such a question, a lob of a question. I think that is a fantastic overview and sets us up quite nicely for maybe a key entry point certainly was my entry point to thinking about this question of nature and politics and that is climate change as this unprecedented historical event moment process that represents a rupture that is qualitatively is qualitatively the right word it, it represents it within the theory that we're talking about sort of an extension of an already existing form of crisis that is driven by how capital values nature and various forms of, of labor. So climate change is this sort of, it changes everything and it changes nothing um, 
but I know that you've really thought about climate as as a catalyst maybe for for political movements um would you have anything to sort of say about about that how that figures in your work at this point yeah it's a really it's a really interesting question and i like the way you put it the kind of climate change changes everything and nothing um because i think uh there's on the one hand we do need to recognize the things that are really distinctive that are really um uh that feel if not entirely new certainly um different than than different you know other kinds of of ecological and environmental crises we've seen before um and yet i think one of the things that i I see a lot in um at least within you know kind of the broad field of of um you know political theorists starting to think about uh climate change um uh, but also in kind of social theory and and um kind of critical social sciences, humanities in general, is often the kind of sense that we need to rethink everything. We need to sort of um, rethink all of our concepts in light of this unprecedented challenge to um, uh, challenge that we face, the kind of idea of the existential crisis and existential threat um, that you see repeatedly. Um, and, you know, uh, and the one thing I think, you know, the, the idea that it's an existential threat is always interesting because we never actually um, you know, it'll we'll have you know you have a politician say it's an existential threat, and then like the thing, the only thing we need to do is like throw a few subsidies to like electric vehicles. You know, somehow there's this like incredible gap between the language of like the the extremity and then like what we're actually proposing to do. And so sometimes I I do want to say yeah we should if you think that we should probably be doing a lot more than we are, and so that can be a useful language. Um, but there are times when I think it can also be um, uh, it can be limiting. And so far, at least, you know, for us as, as scholars and thinkers, if we um, treat it as something so different than than other, um, you know, uh, crises, eco, ecological, social crises. And of course, they're always sort of, um, you know, mutually bound up together um, that we aren't able to sort of take lessons from what we from the huge body of political and social thought and knowledge that we already have and can bring to bear. Um, And I often do think that, um, you know, that I do think climate change is is often a particularly extreme version of um, uh, or or um, of of things that we know are are issues. Um, But one that I think for that precise reason can be illuminating and can hopefully, um, you know, get the attention of people who might have uh, been uninterested in, in all of the other, you know, kinds of ecological crises that we have, um, that, uh, that have, uh, that we could, we could identify as being sort of produced by the same dynamics. And, um, you know, for example, I, I, when I write about like the frame of climate change as an externality, I think it's really interesting that you have these very mainstream, um, uh, economists, um, people like um, you know Nicholas Stern, saying that climate change is like the, the is an externality and the biggest market failure we've ever seen, right? And this is a very classical kind of um, economic frame for thinking about uh, you know kind of um, uh, effects without price and so on. And it's not um, it's not in itself a radical idea, but there's something about climate change that really um, when you really zoom in and look at this, it, it kind of explodes this whole concept because it's like, wow, you know, and you see it, ecological economists, you say, well, maybe everything is an externality. Like, does this concept even make sense if we bring a kind of ecological um, attention to interrelation and interdependence as um, fundamental features of, of ecosystems of human, uh, you know, more than human interactions and so on to bear, then, then suddenly this concept is like, uh, it, 
you have to really, you do have to kind of push on it a lot. You have to do a lot of rethinking. And yet, um, uh, you know, there's there's something that we can understand by understanding how this concept developed from like thinking about kind of, you know, smokestack pollution to thinking about climate change. It's the same idea. It's the same kind of, you know, we can do these sorts of like genealogies of where these ideas came about and, and understand something important there. So, um, you know, so I want to I want to not say we need to like reinvent the wheel and start from scratch. Like maybe we should maybe we should kind of like try to put some of the, um, you know, um, think about what is continuous uh, across across time. Um, while also pointing to the ways that these these seemingly really um, extraordinary versions of these problems actually like point to the limits of, of certain kinds of thought. And I think especially of certain kinds of like, you know, proposed solutions that I think are tend to be often fairly inadequate. <laughs> um, and I think there's something similar. I mean, that was kind of a more thinking about like research or analysis or, or something. But I think there's something similar that hopefully we can do with with the politics. You know, there's a lot of people who I think are very concerned about climate change who maybe um, uh, or, or it certainly seems to um, to some degree to uh, the, the kinds of uh, their urgency and, and sort of the scale of climate change have um, catalyzed some degree. I don't want to overstate this, but, uh, but I think a, a larger degree maybe of, of sort of like public concern than, um, than, than things that people might be able to say, well, that's more localized, that doesn't affect me or something like that. And so, you know, on the one hand, um, like we have to also draw attention to the ways that obviously, um, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're all in really different positions with respect to the sort of, you know, we're in a, it is a global phenomenon and it is in some sense universal and that I do think everyone is in some sense affected, but like what that means is like very, very different, obviously, um, you know, to not kind of flatten that out. It's grounded, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly, very much so. Um, and yet, can we kind of grab that in and use it as a way to kind of push towards um, uh, people, people thinking about all of these other problems that maybe they didn't consider before? And making those connections. And I think that's a great, maybe like final pillar of, of this to unpack before we turn to talk about our contexts. What I find useful about a historical materialist approach is the way it makes really clear that the artificial separation of the political and the economic just isn't going to work when we're confronting crises of these sorts. So the limits of a, a politics that tries to sort of mitigate the harm within the system itself versus a politics that attempts to address the drivers of the problem, the drivers of, of climate change, of environmental degradation, of social destruction. So the way that, you know, a lot of the solutions that are proposed to climate disaster involve essentially you know expanding accumulation in markets in new directions to to redirect the ability to keep this economic system going um and and that's contested and that's interesting and that's fine but basically for all of those people who say why aren't we doing anything why why are we not you know why are these um proposals so tepid and why can't we even get them you know like why is this happening and saying it's not an inherent human fault like there are terrible people on the face of the earth but there are wonderful people too and there's everything in between and it's not an inherent human failure that we've been unable to make progress and try and address these problems it's a really strong set of structures driven by particular imperatives it's a world that we live in 
and you can't just change your mind and change your world. You, you, you change your mind and then you take action in certain ways to try and change things. And for me, that's what, um, that's what a materialist approach to environmental politics and climate change can offer. That's really hopeful. And I think like hard, it's so much harder than just saying, why aren't the politicians doing the right thing? Because it implicates us in ways. And I think we'll come back to this when we're talking about what that means for researchers and academics working in this space. Like what does that then imply about our labor and our, um, our work as part of a, a group that wants something to be done about climate change? So obviously we have the US and Australia are very similar in so many ways, but also have completely different political systems and politics and labor and environmental movements and et cetera, et cetera. Um, would you be able to just maybe outline sort of where you guys are at? You've just had a big piece of federal legislation passed. How's the climate movement looking? How are you feeling in academia? what's going on yeah it's a it's a good question and um i feel like the answer is <laughs> mixed um so yeah it's been i think an interesting few years for climate politics in the u.s certainly um so when we wrote the green new deal book it was um very much intended as a you know direct political intervention to this moment that was kind of um you know there was a there was an upsurge of sort of attention to climate. There was, um, you know, the Sunrise Movement had started doing these disruptive actions in, um, in Congress. Um, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez had just been elected to office and, um, you know, was sort of a for, uh, forefront of a, a Green New Deal platform within Congress. Um, uh, there were, you know, even sort of things that seem like that in other, other times might not have gathered the same attention, but um, you know, like the, um, the, the sort of famous um, IPCC report about, um, you know, sort of like that was read as like uh, at the times like 10 years to save the planet kind of thing. And um, there's been a lot of reports over the years. So why did this one kind of catch, you know, sort of um, attention at a particular moment, I think is part of these, this broader sort of set of, of phenomena, but um, for various reasons. Um, and I think just, you know, the kind of year by year um, growing recognition that, that the climate is changing. Climate change is here. Um, you know, uh, there was a there was a particularly intense wildfire summer that previous summer, um, and so on. So anyway, so we're in this moment when there was kind of an upswing of, of kind of I think attention to climate change, and and it seemed like a, a possibility, and um, the kind of uh, a growing um, U.S. Um, kind of socialist left wing, you know, organizing and activism. Um, going into the our 2020 presidential elections and that kind of, you know, there was a lot of momentum around a, a kind of left climate program of some kind. Um, and, you know, that has been, I think it's been, I guess I would say the, in the in the years since it's obviously a very different political context now, I think in many ways it's hard to imagine um, us having any, any climate action um, you know, or any kind of piece of federal, like the, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act um, is the first piece of federal climate policy that the U.S. has ever passed. And so, you know, people say, oh, it's the biggest climate policy. And it's like, it's the only one. So, <laughs> you know, like bar is low here. Um, so that's like, you know, like to, uh, uh, it's, 
it's pretty easy <laughs> um, to, to do better than what we've been doing. Um, but I think, I think, you know, assessing like where that, I've been trying to think a lot about what that means for what the, the climate movement and especially I think the sort of left climate movement has, has built where we've gotten um, what we've been able to do. And I think we have been successful at putting a lot of um, issues on the table at kind of getting the conversation into a different place it was. I do think that there are aspects of a kind of Green New Deal type vision in um, the IRA in terms of um, certainly it's a move away from the more traditional or I don't know if I want to say more traditional, but what until very recently was the primary mode of climate policy, which was the carbon tax or maybe cap and trade, but a very a much more kind of like exclusively market mechanism based approach um, into something that if not, uh, you know, certainly is not a Green New Deal, but is at least trying to do some kind of combination of, um, you know, uh, climate policy paired with um, other kinds of social policy and especially, you know, using a more interventionist state um, to, uh, you know, to do some kind of industrial policy. I don't even know if I think the IRA is like full on green industrial policy. It's like pretty light. <laughs> um, and, it, and it is, it does have more in common with, I think, some of the strains of like, you know, what happened under um, the Obama administration in terms of subsidies for um uh, for green tech research and uh, a lot of a lot of doing work through like tax credits and um, things like that, rather than big public investments in you know public goods or in um, or even direct public investment in, in research and things like that. So, um, so it's a really it's a mixed bag. It's certainly not the climate policy. Um, I think I think it would not. It's hard to imagine this happening without I think pressure from um, from the left and from the kind of left and and, and anxiety. Um, like within the Biden, uh, you know, Biden and Biden administration about, um, you know, I think they they did learn some lessons from, um, you know, Trump's election and from like, uh, like feeling they actually do need to, to, to um, you know, undertake policies that are that are not um, that have some kinds of benefits for working class people, um, and particularly that are trying to, you know, they're trying to do some political work across state lines. And I think one of the, you know, the sort of state, the federal structure and the state context and some of the perversions of like, you know, democracy that result from things like the Senate um, are things we can talk about and get into in terms of like the micro detail. But in any case, I think they were trying to sort of take on board some of these things. Um, what we got is like a kind of weird hybrid that um, I think is pretty limited as both a climate <laughs> climate policy and um, as a as a kind of you know um, stepping stone towards um, towards more. And I'm a little worried that the you know I don't want to go on too long, but I, I I'm a little worried that even the sort of partial success has um, sort of um, under undercut the momentum of uh, the the U.S. climate movement, which I think was like. Um, it's, you know, it's, I think because it's a question of do you do you support this inadequate but something? Um, how much pressure do we put? Where do you put pressure? Um, and so on. And and uh, you know, it's just a really new phase for I think the U.S. climate movement, which has, um, uh, you know, figuring out what the next steps are. I think uh, you know is, is is like a big question on the table. And um, you know, I can say more about that. But I'd love to hear sort of. How you've been thinking about, um, you know, your work on a on Australian Green New Deal, and what you see as the the challenges and questions, and you know, perhaps particularly around extractive industry, um, which you know is obviously I think a um, you know really interesting question and one that I don't think that we've actually 
for all the kind of green jobs rhetoric that we've had here in the U.S., I don't really think we have anything like a just transition pathway for um, you know workers who are um, uh, you know in extractive sectors or even in you know there's like this huge strike with UAW right now around um, the shift from uh, you know one of their big issues is is the loss of jobs and the shift from internal combustion engine um, you know cars to electric vehicles and I don't think that there's anything in the IRA that is is you know actually providing that kind of pathway because there's like nothing that's planned or um, it's it's all just kind of incentives to, to private um, companies to hopefully do the things that we want them to do. But if they don't, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, it's a very similar sounding situation to my understanding of Australian climate politics at this point. But I think what's been being made really clear you know, extractive industry in Australia is mining. Um, you know, there's obviously an attempt to turn to renewables, to wind, to solar. It's like the sunniest place on earth. Don't fact check that. I don't know if it's right, but it's a very sunny place in Australia. You know, like the potential for renewables is huge, but of course that meets an existing socio-political formation embedded materially in, in ecologies um, that definitely we we shall see we shall see how we go i think driving the all sort of the themes that i see informing this conversation in australia and here i should i should note again i'm always drawing really heavily in discussions like this on work i've done with natasha heenan uh on on the green new deal in australia so this is in no way all my own thinking and sorry tash if i get things wrong but um some of the themes going on in the background things like the real idealization or like idea of pure nature and how to protect it from you know rapacious extractive industry drives this wedge between a particular kind of environmentalism and industry and we know that one of the key things that you have to square in a materialist environmental politics is thinking about all labor and all work as us moving through the rest of nature to reproduce ourselves and the world around us. So it's it's more or less, you know, theoretically easy to make those links, but actually on the ground discussion and politics can be really hard. I will say history has, Australia has an incredible history of labour organising um, for, you know, the conscious production of nature, for the democratic collective production of nature, um, and looking to you know, the Builders Labourers Federation and green bands and things sort of is, is an example historically of how that's played out. And I think there's definitely appetite for similar discussions and movements here at the moment. What I think is unique about this time is all of the crises are converging in ways that encourage really reactionary politics and, and solutions that don't open us up to expansive possibility, but shut down the gates and and try and hold on to what privileges remain. So you know, um, it's, uh, you know, when we were talking about what we would talk about in this discussion, I, I mentioned ecofascism as a, as a thing that troubles me and I'm sure troubles many people, but that's explicitly about, you know, a politics that thinks of nature as pure, something to be protected and people as you know, scourges or people is the problem as opposed to historically specific ways of, of organizing ourselves and our reproduction. So I think, 
you know, there are these discussions about what I've just been sort of ad-libbing about going on in the academy. And there's definitely some incredible critical discussion going on in the labor movement here. But I feel like there's this big bit in the middle of a lot of people, particularly in the middle class, who just are not, you know, they're sort of pinning their hopes maybe on the school strike for climate, but there's no mechanism or theory of power or change sort of embedded in that that's connecting. So my question, because watching from afar the rise of labor movements in the US and, and, and how politics is responding to that, I guess I'd love to know a bit more about how concretely people are building power and attempting to address socio-ecological degradation, including climate change, in your context? Yeah, it's a really, um, it's a really important question. And I think it's something I think we're still figuring out, certainly. <laughs> um, and I do think that some things around the IRA and or the result of the IRA have felt like they really illustrated the limits of um, the power that, uh, you know, that both, again, both the climate movement and the U.S. left have built um over the past like 10 or so years and you know um i guess to be fair to the u.s left we went from like <laughs> zero to something um so that you know it's it's a lot uh but you know but then but then it it's um there's a point at which you realize you have yeah a lot more discursive power than uh than you know like kind of actual ability to you know like make public investment or, um, you know, kind of discipline fossil capital or anything like that. So um, I think right now, you know, in the in the past, like at, in, the, in the failure of federal legislation, there's always been a kind of like, oh, well, like, let's look at the local and that um, I used to find very depressing. <laughs> uh, and in some ways it is, but I think there's also a lot happening. So, you know, you asked about um, like labor and, and I do think the US labor movement is, I mean, it's still, I don't want to overstate things because it's still, things are like still like quite dire, frankly. Um, and the unionization rate is still extremely low and um, it's not, you know, it's not like there's um, huge, like a huge turnaround in terms of like the absolute number of workers who are unionized. But I think that workers who are, um, there's been just both, a, you know, the sort of flourishing and efflorescence of, of new union um, drives. And, you know, I think like Amazon and Starbucks have gotten a lot of attention as kind of like the new economy um kind of uh, uh, iterations of that. Um, but it's really interesting right now. I, I do feel very hopeful looking at the UAW strike as like, a, um, you know, I think a, a, an upsurge. In, and we've seen this in other and other kind of like, you know, um, unions and, and that have been, uh, you know, they're not they're not like, it's not unionizing new workers, it's workers who have been unionized, but new um, births of militancy um, within existing unions. And and this is, I think, what feels really distinctive and exciting about um, the UAW strike to me are, um, are both, you know, on the one hand, uh, Sean Fain, the UAW president, is like just really like a, like a force who's really just like not... Um, like he just doesn't take any shit, um, you know, and he's like a, was elected, I think, very interestingly. It's like from both kind of like reformist currents within the UAW um, uh, were really like a driving force behind his his campaign. But also, you know, there's been this sort of influx of, um, you know, of UAW unionized academic workers and, you know, graduate uh, workers and teachers um, in the past few years. And, and sometimes people dismiss 
you know, that's like, oh, it's like the, the, these radical grad students elected um, him. And that's like just not true at all. Um, so like, I don't want to say that this is why, but I think there's a very interesting, you know, it's, it's, it, that's like not the reason, but there are really interesting kind of, um, it's a place where you see the sort of, again, like um, kind of historically, you know, like um, these like sections of the of labor movement that have, have been, um, like were the backbone of like 20th century U.S. Uh, labor, and that used to be like incredibly powerful, and um, have have really um, been struggling since. Uh, have you know I think since like 2008 have like taken a lot of workers have taken a lot of sacrifices to keep these companies and sort of like dinosaurs of U.S. auto manufacturing alive, and so on, and um, you know, and that are trying to to do something different, um, merging with this kind of again like new sectors of, of the economy coming in. And so there's some interesting kind of like, what is like a new kind of um, like class formation of politics here um, that I think is very exciting about that. Um, but also it's just really cool to see, um, like it's, I think this is the first time that we're seeing, um, I would say not only kind of um, some lip service paid to the idea of supporting, uh, you know, something like a just transition or, or um, you know, but, they're really, they've really been, I've been really impressed at how much the OW has continued to say, like, we support this, like, we want to, you know, we want to build electric vehicles, we're not against, you know, we, we just, we are going to insist that this have protections for workers, and, like, we actually are going to try to use our power to make sure that no one is left behind in this. Um, and that that has been, you know, again, this kind of uh, this issue of, of um, both making sure that, um, you know, the kinds of the plants that are being built often with these new federal subsidies are um, are unionized because a lot of them are being built in right to work states um, in the U.S. South, where it's uh, much harder to unionize. Um, you know, and they're, they're very aware of this <laughs> that this kind of big you know boom of, of green industrial uh, build out is in some ways premised on a um, you know on the expectation that a lot of this labor will be cheap because it will be non union labor. Um, and so they're saying, you know, they're really insisting that a like the, these should be unionized jobs, and like that we and we need to make sure that like we're not, you know, just shedding a huge number of jobs in this move. So like, you know, whatever that looks like, that has to be part of it. So that I think is um, it's it feels like a new shift for me, both in terms of of. Um, making the idea of the just transition sort of real and trying to to do so through this uh you know um through an institution like a union that is on strike that's going on strike the strike is growing kind of like perpetually at this point um and that's not just like by saying that we want a just transition but that's actually saying like if you don't you know if you don't figure this out we are not coming to work <laughs> um and uh and then also you know but also like the degree to which i think this the union has made this an issue um and is is not it's not the you know because i think there are very good reasons why you know extractive industry and sort of you know fossil fuel adjacent industry workers are often like no i don't believe you when you say 
we're going to make it a just transition, you know, like there's no reason that you would believe that it's not. And, and I'm not sure that we in the climate movement have shown that we can actually deliver on that. So it's a good, it's, it's very legitimate to be suspicious of this. So it's really encouraging me to, to see like this as something that is, is very much like union led and like, who knows where this goes? Like, it's really hard to see. Um, it's one sector of many that we need to be involved and in kind of um, pushing around uh, what a you know, this this kind of um, what right now is basically a subsidy program for green capital and how that can be uh, not not only that. Um, but uh, so there's it's it's just a, it is, you know, I don't want to overstate and say like this, this, this will solve everything, but it's it feels like a, it feels new to me in, in hopeful ways um, and like a place where where, um, you know, both in terms of sort of like where um, building and using power and the, the the connections that are being made to, you know, and, and coming to from like a an industry like the auto industry, which is like a kind of, you know, has a lot of kind of cultural, like it's a, a charismatic union. People have strong associations with this. And it's also like obviously like very deeply linked to climate change itself. So it would be, you know, it's exciting to see that this could be um, a place where, where workers in an industry that has historically been extremely um you know, kind of responsible for climate change could be part of like pushing for something different. And it's so interesting the way that, I mean, so many things come up for me as you're talking. It's so it's such a rich conversation, but I think looking beyond the people in the unions, the people who are striking, who are building political programs sort of within those bodies to the wider appreciation amongst the younger generations for this form of power and this form of solidarity and care for each other. I mean, I think especially through COVID and sort of, you know, other crises, I know the word people are using now is polycrisis, but they're all crises of capitalism, like <laughs> the different forms of crisis and seeing people sort of understand the drivers and then also the really human response is to stand with each other and collectively determine how you're going to navigate the crisis together. Um, I don't know, I've been really encouraged to see rising understanding of that way of being in the world, I think. And, I, and again, like overstating is really easy. And I know that, you know, so many people are living hand to mouth and it's a really hard time to be, you know, trying to do progressive politics when you're on the bones of your asses is, is really hard. But uh, in a way, it also encourages that sense of expansive solidarity, you know, with people doing different kinds of work, with people who are trying to make a just transition happen in the auto or the mining industry, with people who are taking on additional care labour, with people who are caring for other species, with people who are all collectively trying to sort of patch together and protect the bases of our collective world. Um, so I think there's certainly um, lots to worry about, but there's, I think, a lot to be hopeful for as well. And I'm just seeing the time and thinking maybe this is a nice point to pivot to what early career researchers might be sort of how we might be understanding this sort of politics and theory and, and positioning ourselves as people who are interested in building progressive uh, movements and understandings of, of the world. So I know that you are a really effective communicator and have sort of positioned yourself within um, 
you know, within progressive coalitions trying to build these understandings and politics. And you're certainly a bit further along in your career than me and potentially have some um, advice to offer for how you can do meaningful work, I guess, as a early career academic without putting yourself um, out of contention in a really competitive, awful industry a lot of the time. Yeah, it really, it really is that. And um, I, I, I'll do my best. I mean, I feel, I do feel very fortunate to be in a field um, which, where you are, you know, allowed to have opinions, <laughs> um, which is political theory. Like, you know, you can, you can have a, like part of, I think part of what we do is have, you know, political arguments. And so I feel like, um, I have always been a bit like at times more and less anxious about how that would be perceived or about how like, you know, you're not supposed to do, um, or I think at least the conventional wisdom has often been that you're not supposed to do kind of, you know, anything but your academic work until you have tenure and then you can, then you can turn to it. But at that point, you know, it's, it's a long time to spend, um, not, not, kind of involved in the world and um, especially for something you know working on issues like climate change it feels like untenable basically but um, I I guess I've always found that um, and again I feel I feel like doing a lot of the kinds of it I guess like the kinds of like political and work and writing work and, and academic work I do feel very closely connected to me even though I feel like I treat them pretty differently like I don't you know my book on the free gifts of nature I hope people will find useful and interesting and I think there are a lot of connections to thinking about contemporary um, environmental and climate politics and hopefully illuminating some aspects of them but I don't expect it to kind of like you know make the same kind of political intervention that something like planet to win was supposed to do whether or not it did and um, so trying to I guess to see it as I, I do think it really is a strength in a lot of ways, like to be looking at um, like the, um, to have a sense of like the stakes of what your work means in, in the, you know, um, in the, you know, quote unquote real world, <laughs> um, even as you're also trying to like explore you know, some of those questions at a, at a, you know, deeper or more abstract or whatever it may be level. And to be able to make the case for why those, you know, are, are not separate and like actually have to kind of be, that it's, that, that you have to be kind of constantly, I think, moving between these registers, or at least I find that I can only really think through a lot of these things when moving between the kind of more like concrete political work and then going back onto the sort of like theoretical stuff. And, um, that at least for me has always been key to how I put ideas together. And I think um, I'm trying to like <laughs> embrace that more instead of feeling like, oh, you know, I should just let, you know, you should just, they should be separate ideally or something like that. And obviously I think a lot of, um, this is another thing that I think, you know, a lot of, of, of you know, materialist thought is great on theory and praxis are, <laughs> are intertwined activities. Um, and I, uh, you know, I think what you're saying earlier about the ways that, um, you know, kind of to go back to our earlier discussion of the ways that, um, the, the tools of, of historical materialism and, and like Marxist thought, I think are actually are really important <laughs> um, for thinking about a lot of questions of like climate environment. Like, and I, and I feel like I'm, I'm you know, um, I, I don't know if I'm, well, leaving aside like whether or not I, I, I 
I, I hope to sort of make this case to people, um, whether or not they find it convincing is, is one thing or another. But I do think, um, you know, just to just to sort of like this question of how to, I don't know, um, to navigate it is, is I think just like, I think it's not a coincidence that a lot of the, you know, people in, in political theory are often reading, you know, reading like Andreas Malm or Jason Moore is sort of these like, you know, verso books on like capitalism and nature, because that's where a lot of the work is happening. Like that's where I think the, the cutting edge of a lot of this work is. Um, uh, you know, <laughs> maybe I would say that because that's the stuff I read, but, uh, you know, and, and many other things too. But um, but it's, it's I think it's, it's, again, it's something that like we have real knowledge and tools to bring and to, uh, to not discount. So that's the more on the sort of research side or like how to think about that as, as early career. But I also think there's something with climate change that, you know, people, um, people get that it's like, it isn't, you know, to go back and to go back to even like what is different and, and not different about climate with other questions. Like maybe climate isn't the only thing that should be treated this way as like urgent enough that it's like legitimate to talk about as like a political issue that we should be doing stuff on in real time. Um, but whether or not that's like a fair uh, kind of exception to the rule, um, that is, I think, sometimes, you know, I, I find actually sometimes when I do more theoretical work, people are like, but what do we do right now? And I'm like, can read my other, you know, this is, I do that in my other book or something, you know? <laughs> um, and so there's a way that I think it's like, actually, people really want to really want to be, um, figure out very concrete things. And, and this actually, I think, is one thing that I find challenging about um, doing both kind of climate, more like day-to-day -day politics stuff and like the more theoretical stuff is sometimes feeling like the urgency. For a long time, I felt, you know, or I used to think of the urgency as a way to like really push towards like more radical or structural analyses because like obviously we need to understand, you know, it's again that existential threat and like, so we're going to just like throw a little bit of subsidy in the corner, you know, kind of like this juncture and feeling like obviously this, this, if this is like the threat, we should be like getting the action <laughs> up to meet it. Right. Um, and that's one thing. But then the other version is like, well, literally anything is better than nothing always. And like, sometimes that's true in some sense, but it means that you can really just kind of have an extremely small scale of, um, it can be, I think it can be very, um, it can really cut against having that bigger picture, either critique or vision. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we need to be like always radical pragmatics in some sense. And, you know, again, like shifting between these two registers and, and able to say like, you know, to, to um, recognize even partial victories, even as we're always like not enough and try to keep moving and keep pushing and so on. Cause like, you know, that's, that seems like, you know, all we can do, but I think um, just to, there's something that can make that hard to do. There is something about it that I think doing more theoretical or kind of more abstract work or doing the, doing the more academic research, I sometimes find harder um, almost than the, um, than the, the more kind of direct, you know, or making the case for that or why we should care about, you know, like the theory of capitalism as opposed to just like literally how do we get carbon emissions down like tomorrow, which we need to do. But, you know, so that's, that's, I think an interesting, I don't know if you've had this, um, if this is something you recognize at all, but it's something I've been thinking about um, when I used to think the problem went more the other direction. Mm. I think um, one thing that I struggle with in trying to, and, you know, this is, 
you know, you're definitely a little bit by a Trojan horse here trying to get the historical material, materialist theory into this discussion about what academic labor is and what our jobs are and how we should be doing it is. I really, I find it very frustrating when people think they can write about radical things and not be radical, you know, like not think about their own life and labor as important tools within struggles for progressive causes. Like we are not just passengers as academics. Like we have a lot of institutional power and while the conditions that we work in have deteriorated massively in the last however many years, uh, we still have so much capacity to be putting our shoulders in behind trying to expand and develop and think through these issues radically and, and align ourselves with the different you know, seats of power that are attempting to actually make those changes. And, you know, there are heaps of people who do a really great job of it, but it's something I think about, you know, like how, how to, how to sort of set yourself up to do that. Um, and how to not alienate your colleagues by saying to them, like, what are you doing? You know, like, why, why would you not turn up to the picket line or like why wouldn't you go to the climate strike or like why won't you go and do the things that and that's look that's that's more an interpersonal skill set being able to build those solidarities and 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 bring people along and also be self-reflective and think about how you know you may be contributing to um people not wanting to engage in that way by by being too intense or whatever but i think overall i just feel like we're very lucky to be thinking about these things in the ways that we are. We've got this massive toolkit that's been built over decades, if not centuries by people. Uh, and it's there waiting to be picked up and like taken, you know, brought to bear on our current material conditions. Um, so I, Sorry for ending on a light spiel. Um, do, do we want a more positive, happy message before we wrap up this conversation, which I've really enjoyed? Yeah, I mean, I could just say to that really briefly. I don't know how positive it is, but but I do think that one of the things that um, I mean, I I know that my you know doing um, organizing around academic labor, and I, was, I did a lot of organizing around the um, grad union and grad school. And it was very, it was really hard. It was, it was much harder than any academic work I've ever done. Um, it was very, because it was very intensive organizing. It was a lot of like, you know, building relationships, like, um, you know, uh, uh, doing like structure tests, doing real, like, um, really trying to, to exactly build power in the ways we were talking about earlier. And it's hard. Um, and it requires these really, um, you know, a lot of work and a lot of relationship building and, you know, so that you can both kind of meet people where they are and like move them and be like, why didn't you come to this thing? You said you're coming and they won't just be like, I'm not going to listen to you anymore, but they're going to be like, oh yeah, I did say that. And, you know, whatever, and have that kind of commitment and obligation. And I think it's very hard to build organizations and institutions like that. And I don't think we have those nearly enough in like the kind of climate movement like um you know it's just not 
Um, and really, it's, it's, I think, a very hard to build them even outside of like labor. I mean, in the US, like historically, they've been kind of um, associated, this kind of organizing has been very much associated with the labor movement. Um, you know, I know some organizations and, you know, like the DSA are like trying to do um, versions of, of or learn from lessons from that kind of organizing. I think, um, you know, Sunrise was, uh, you know, had a sort of different model, but was like trying to sort of build connections amongst, um, you know, kind of um, young activists and so on and people who are really committed and willing to do a lot. But it's just, it's just, um, it's tough. And I, one of the things, you know, <laughs> this is not the happy note. I worry that we don't have the kinds of those kinds of organizations and institutions to kind of carry through and to, you know, to keep pushing and kind of lulls and, you know, um, uh, uh, and to, and to kind of be, um, that can just be, uh, there in a in a long-term way but i think we are starting to develop them that's my hopeful note <laughs> so uh that and like the, the the realization that we need this where um you know does where things have come a long way and so i think figuring out like what is the next step to like really kind of solidifying some of the connections and and relationships and um uh, and ideas that have that have emerged and it's been like a like this flourishing of you know through our kind of exciting um several years but um that there's there's something you need to do for like a kind of more long haul um vision now so so i'm excited to start doing that great positive note that was an excellent bringing up of, of that um okay we've reached our hour um so we should wrap it up thank you so so much to Alyssa for taking the time to do this and Huge, huge thanks as well to Suha and Evie from SEI who have done all of the admin to, to make this happen. We appreciate you guys so much. Uh, hope everyone enjoyed it. And uh, Alyssa, we'll continue this conversation elsewhere. Absolutely. Thank you all so much.